You are listening to It's Midnight Somewhere with DJs Mistress McCutcheon and The Wasteland. It's midnight somewhere. It's midnight. It's midnight somewhere. Hi, this is Mistress McCutcheon coming to you from downtown Toronto. I'm accompanied by my DJ partner in crime, The Wasteland. Also coming from Western downtown Toronto. Today's topic, we're talking about one of the most recognizable figures from horror, who has defined the look and the demeanor of vampires on screen as we know them, and forever immortalized by Bauhaus. We're talking about Bella Lugosi. And I know our producer actually threw the curveball at us, but why why him on a goth podcast? And I think it's important to just lay the groundwork right away. Um, yeah, he, he kind of, it's a whole style and everything. Like the man was buried in one of his Dracula cloaks, so, uh, or capes. I don't know what the correct terminology is, but there's an entire fashion line that looks like stuff he would have worn in the movie. And um, God damn it, the Count from Sesame Street is even based off of that character. That and I think one of our tie-ins talking about Bella Lugosi on a goth podcast is as horror fans, I think there's a big tie-in with horror. And when it comes to the classic Hollywood monsters, we know Boris Karloff, who forever defined the look of Frankenstein's monster. And Lon Chaney is another big name as far as the classic monsters, uh, who was known for his starring roles in The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. But Bella Lugosi has defined vampires and what that look is and how that's carried through uh, in the goth aesthetic, I think, is pretty clear. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So uh, this is going to be more of a talky podcast as we've done some research, probably along the lines of... um, one of our more historical episodes, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so strap in, folks. Let's get to it. Aren't you drinking? I never drink. Why? For a man who had a career that spanned over five decades, five marriages, and two world wars, he was born Bella Ferenc Desco Blasco in Lugos, Hungary, in a region that is now Romania, on October 20th, 1882. So his stage name actually comes from his birth city. He's the youngest of four children. At the age of 12, he had dropped out of school and uh, his father died, which was a major event in his life that caused him to go on and carve his own path. His his family was very middle class. His father was a banker. They didn't see acting as a respectable uh, profession, but he ran away from home. He was very interested in pursuing the arts. He took up a bunch of odd jobs and uh, and became an actor. He was born about 50 miles away from the castle of Vlad Tepes, you know, Dracula, Count Dracula, who he would later go on to perform as in an embellished sense for many, many years and one of his and his most recognizable character. He made his stage debut at the age of 20 in 1902, and that was when he adopted the name Bella Lugosi in the following year. Local critics called him the Lawrence Olivier of Hungary, which is kind of interesting, really, when you think about it. And he was invited to join the National Theater of Budapest that, that same year. 
Yes, he was a member of the National Theater from 1913 until 1919, and at the start of World War One, he voluntarily joined the army and served as a lieutenant in the 43rd Royal Hungarian Infantry. The ski patrol, to be precise, actually, he was he was a, he was a ski patrol guy. <laughs> Like, I, I know everybody wants to talk about how Christopher Lee was, like, in, in, in World War II and all that, but can you imagine, like, I think of Bela Lugosi, I think of him as Dracula, and now all I can think of is Dracula on skis with a rifle. <laughs> it definitely paints a picture. It, it is a picture. Um, after the war, though, uh, or when his service was completed, he did return almost immediately to acting uh, as cinema began to gain popularity. Yeah, because apparently he had been injured a couple times in the war, uh, returned and was acting in Germany. He did, though, emigrate to America in December of 1920. He entered the country at New Orleans and then made his way to New York and went through immigration at Ellis Island. It wasn't voluntary. He was forced out of his country after uh, becoming a leader in the Communist Party there. So after, after he got out of the military, after being uh, injured a few times, as you said, he became a supporter of the Hungarian Communist Party, which was founded in December 1918. And its leader, leader who was also known as Bela Kun, they were following the example of revolutionary Russia and a mass uprising overthrew the old regime. And the Hungarian Soviet Republic was founded on March 21st, 1919. Uh, during this time, Lugosi led a demonstration of actors in March 1919 and emerged as a high-profile organizer. He then founded the Free Organization of Theatrical Employees, which later expanded into the first film actors union in the world, uh, known as the National Trade Union of Actors. Uh, this whole political involvement or, or uh, Soviet-Hungarian government was very short-lived and was actually overthrown I forget the exact date but later that same year uh, it was only a few months and that is what forced him from his homeland he didn't speak any English upon arriving in the United States and his first Hollywood film in 1923 the silent command he had to learn his lines phonetically through the aid of a tutor he later landed the role of Dracula in 1927 in a Broadway production, and the production was a big success, and Lugosi stayed with the show for the duration of its three-year run, including the tours that were involved. It wouldn't be later until 1931 that Bela Lugosi would be immortalized in his role as Dracula on film. It was rumored that Lon Chaney was the first choice for the role and that Lugosi was only chosen due to Chaney's death shortly before production, but Lon Chaney was actually contracted to MGM and the director, Todd Browning, who also directed Freaks uh, the following year, uh, he was directing this for Universal. And Bella Lugosi was still an unknown, so it was kind of... Not a likely choice for Bella Lugosi, but the Hollywood filmograph also lobbied on his behalf for him to get this particular role. Bella Lugosi was also offered the role of Frankenstein, but he turned it down and felt that it was beneath him because he would have so few lines in that role and be so covered in makeup. He was actively working in film and held a lot of different roles within the horror genre, like the adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue and Island of Lost Souls, and even co-starring with Boris Karloff in The Black Cat, The Raven, and The Invisible Ray. But 
Throughout Bela Lugosi's career, he had quite a few ups and downs, especially struggling with poverty and drug addiction. The interesting thing to note was uh, Boris Karloff being one of the other the other big name horror actor. They would only be in a, they would be in a couple of movies together. And we're always professional and courteous to each other uh, on set, but they did not socialize at all um, offset. They they had you know they would they would have a working relationship, but that's it. So there, I know some people wondered. Or have wondered. I wonder what the, what they were like outside, but they didn't really hang out. Yeah, because it's been rumored that Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff had sort of a rivalry, sort of akin to like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, but that really isn't true. And even when Bella Lugosi was social, he'd have a lot of social gatherings at his home with various other members of the community that were also Hungarian immigrants. He wasn't really into the Hollywood schmoozing. Yeah. Because I know uh, if you've ever seen Tim Burton's uh, film, Ed Wood, there's a lot of inaccuracy that's portrayed in that film. And it makes it seem like Bela Lugosi was super anti-Boris Karloff. Yeah, they. I think they took a lot of liberties with... Um people's impressions of him because he was kind of a private man and you know as you said he 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 kind of ran with his his people during the 20s he would marry three times once for three days uh. he had an affair with clara bow at one point which i did not know before doing some research here uh for folks who may not know who clara bow is if you google her picture she is she, her look is iconic. She's unmistakable. She was the it girl of the silver screen in the 1920s. Her career kind of fizzled out upon the arrival of talkie films. But um, she's one of the original like flapper actresses. So I didn't know that she hmm. had involvement with Bella Lugosi, which I thought was very interesting. Interesting. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't find that bit when I was doing my my end of this. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other the other thing to to note because we've talked about the the play of and the movie for Dracula is that he never wore fangs in any portrayal of Dracula. Yes. I mean, anybody who's seen the movie would notice he hasn't worn fangs, but he didn't do it in the play either because he already had a thick enough accent trying to get a lot of the words out, so he didn't want it to get in the way. Yeah. He was he was very prolific also with... But he did do things within Hollywood. He was uh, a founding member of the Screen Actors Guild, and he was no member number 28. So, you know, he really had a thing for labor and people being represented... Um, he was a card-carrying communist for pretty much his whole life, so... Yeah, which that I did not know. I knew he was he was politically active, but I was not aware that he was, he was a communist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As a very private person, he had a very public problem. Uh, due to injuries sustained from his military service... He had developed a severe and chronic sciatica, and doctors had prescribed heavy opiates to him. He became addicted to morphine and to methadone, and the growth of his dependence was proportional to his dwindling screen offers. He, he was a big star for Dracula, but then he kind of got pigeonholed and stuck on that role. And that's what he has always been known for and, and again, has been immortalized as. His last A movie was... 
Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 1948, although his drug use was so notorious that producers initially weren't even aware that he was still alive, and they had penciled in another actor for the role. Yeah, and it actually was only the second time he played Dracula. He only played Dracula in in Dracula and in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. And he had been out of it for so long at that point, as you said, people thought he was dead due to his drug problem. Well, in the 1950s, he attempted to revive his career in England doing a touring production of Dracula, which was described as being a totally mismanaged failure that never made it to the West End theaters. He had landed some roles in B-movies, such as Mother Riley Meets the Vampire and Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. But by 1955, he had voluntarily checked into the state hospital in Norwalk, California. And around this time is the same time he started working with the man known as the worst director in the world, the ambitious but financially strapped Ed Wood. Yeah, who you could almost do an entire episode on on Ed Wood. But as you said, there's already a movie on it. Uh, it's not a particularly great movie, but it is. it can be a fun watch if you're into classic schlock. Oh, sure. It's very much filmed in that. It's very much filmed in that vein. When working with Ed Wood, one of the films he was involved in was Glenn or Glenda, uh, where he held a role as a scientist. Then, of course, there's Plan 9 from Outer Space, which would be released in 1957 uh, with Bela Lugosi in the film partially. Yeah, he died in the middle of the production, right? That's right. He died of a heart attack on August 16, 1956, uh, lying in his bed in his Los Angeles apartment at the age of 73. And Ed Wood filled in his role with his wife's chiropractor, who portrayed the role partially with his cape over his face, which was something that Bela Lugosi would do in some of his earlier films with Boris Karloff and um, in some of his other roles when he was portraying Dracula. He was buried in his Dracula cape at Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California, but contrary to popular belief, it was not his request. It was a decision that was actually made by his son, Bela Lugosi Jr., and his fourth wife, Lillian Arch, who believed that would be something he'd appreciate and that he liked. Lillian Arch, who he spent, uh, it was his longest of his five marriages as well. I believe they were married for about 20 years. Yeah, yeah. She went with him to England as he was touring the uh, the Dracula plays, And uh, apparently he was already in his 60s portraying Dracula in England and the the plays were touring through Leicester and Brighton and with the intention of making it to London and it was just such a disaster and apparently a lot of the actors that were involved were, were not professional, were just these amateurs and then goofy things would happen like they'd have a prop bat that would overstay its welcome on the stage and things like that so it was kind of a disaster but Lillian was very loyal she was with him through uh through that England tour would always have a cigar ready for him after he was uh off the stage and and that sort of thing so but yeah he was married five times because at the end of his life he had married a fan and she had come home and was the one who found him after his heart attack 
Yeah, his his son had noted, as since you mentioned a cigar, that he was an avid cigar smoker, but he would never bring it in the house and never smoke in front of his son. Um, whenever his son would call him while he was having a cigar, he would always put it somewhere discreet, like in a in a box or off to the side. So he was pretty good, according to notes from his son that that I found on keeping his his vices away from from him. Yeah. Which is pretty considerate. There's a lot of parents today that don't bother. So, I mean, that's, you know, an admirable trait there. Oh, I agree. So, uh, here, here's one for you. Did you know in 30, 1935, he was named the honorary president of the Los Angeles Soccer League because he was that big of a fan? Really? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was very, he was a, a, a pretty active member of the Hungarian community and, fi- and again it makes sense coming over as a Hungarian immigrant and fleeing your country for political strife they stuck together for sure but it's just it's just so amazing that this whole idea of vampirism uh, it has, how it's portrayed in film because earlier than Dracula was Nosferatu and vampires were made as monsters and Bella made being a vampire very romantic and it's it's kind of nuts. almost sexy yeah he made it sexy and, and it's very it, it's crazy to see how that iconic look has just carried over for so long there are entire websites out there especially for men where you can get vampire style clothing where it's just like literally a vest and a shirt with some brocade on it and it's it's all looks exactly like something he would have worn in a movie just you know with more flash to it uh as i said uh, earlier it's you know the count from sesame street is is based on him and his look which which i think to me is is kind of where you know when you when you get represented on sesame street by by a puppet made by jim henson you you have made a cultural impact on more people than i think you realize <laughs> that right yeah as a as a cultural icon again the most memorable portrayal of dracula from almost 100 years ago at this point. It's crazy. Yeah, the the Dracula himself, as they called him. Yeah. Yeah, while, while Bela Lugosi is a cultural icon and is representative of what a vampire is with the accent with the with the look with the way he with the delivery of his lines which were always copied because i mean later christopher lee would would then portray dracula as would uh, gary oldman in the uh, remake of bram stoker's dracula with uh, winona Ryder and keanu reeves but uh again Bela Lugosi's portrayal has has been the one that's that's cemented it all. Even if you go outside of just the Dracula movies, if you go to just about any vampire movie, you there's always something. There's always something there that'll remind you of the original. Like they draw on it so heavy, Hollywood kind of keeps eating the same ideas and spitting them back out. So if it's not Nosferatu, it's Bela Lugosi. There's really only two ways you can go. There's always the old vampire who's got the cape or the vests and, you know, that style, maybe with a cane or, you know, 
or as you said, Gary Oldman with the seductive thing, because most Dracula was a bigger hit with women than it was with men in the 30s, and most of his fan mail came from women, so I'm not surprised he was married five times. Yes, I saw that too, actually. I mean, he was 6'1", and very apparently very charming, very charismatic, and had a lot of female fans. Yeah, so, I mean, he kind of lived the part, so to speak. Yeah. He was charming and, and you know, got their attention. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to me, it's just, it's a shame in Tim Burton's uh, Ed Wood film that they just got so many things so wrong. He never owned small dogs. He didn't use profanity. He did not have a massive rivalry with Boris Karloff. So the the way he was portrayed in the, in the film is just wrong, wrong, and wrong. Yeah, yeah almost comically bad it's they turned him into almost a punchline for the movie yeah it's a shame one of the other fun facts i found in researching this is there is a bella lugosi website that has various notes from his son and there is a listing of all his residences of where he lived in new york and where he lived in la that's interesting. Yeah, which is funny because he was in he was in Midtown and then he was on the Upper East Side, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's funny just because it makes me wonder, okay, well, after uh, when we make it to a time where travel can happen again, it'd be really interesting to kind of come upon these uh, locations and uh, and check them out. Especially if they're still there. I mean, that that becomes part of it. Well, yeah. In Midtown, more, more more so than Midtown than probably the Upper East Side. But Well, then again, uh, whenever we can travel again freely and when things kind of pass over as far as, quote unquote, getting on the other side of this, it'll we'll be, we'll be able to give a tour of New York of what used to be there. We'll play the game of what used to be here. Oh, yeah, that place <laughs> that used to be this oh. club. Oh, that place that used to be uh. blah, blah, blah. I, I feel like we'll be able to do that in Toronto at the rate things are going Oy. when this is over. But that's that's altogether too depressing to get into right now. Yeah, but but seriously, uh, in the interim, we could always go to Google Maps and kind of check out these various locations. You can get the listing of Bella Lugosi residences on the website. It's it's bellalugosi.com. And it gives the full rundown of where he lived from 1921, his various uh, apartments in New York City, all the way through to uh, where he lived in L.A. and and in Hollywood. So as far as the tie-in to the goth culture, Bauhaus brought in Bela Lugosi with their 1979 recording of Bela Lugosi's Dead, which can be noted as maybe officially the first gothic rock song or goth song uh, over 40 years ago now. So, and the various imagery that's actually used for that album come from uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is a film from the 20s uh, in Weimar era Germany. The other album art that you'll see associated with Bela Lugosi's Dead comes from a film called The Sorrows of Satan which is actually based on a novel by Marie Corelli that came out in 1895 and uh, was later filmed in 1926. So I got a question for you. Okay. Have you watched the original Dracula? I actually have only seen it in bits and pieces. I actually sat down and watched it when I was like 11. Somebody had it on videotape and I was like, I want to see this. This is the original. 
Which is really hard to sit down as a hyperactive 11-year-old boy and watch, you know, a very slow-moving old movie, like, before they put music in films. But I did it. I did it. And it it was something. It was something because, you know, he they limited his lines, um, but he, he delivered them well and creepy. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Sitting through some of those old films, and it's it's sad because here we are in 2020 talking about films from almost 100 years ago and, and 100 years ago, films that came out in the 20s, and a lot of these films are getting lost because the film itself yeah. is degrading and we're we're losing these, but it's, it's really funny to see how things were done because of the technology that was available to them and how things were acted and how things were portrayed. And you'll see a lot of overacting in a lot of films at this time because these are actors that are coming from the stage who had to project their expressions and their emotions for the back row. And seeing that on film, it looks very extra by today's standards. I mean, unless you're watching a Gary Oldman movie. Sure, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, the... That, I couldn't help it. That version of Dracula, again, nothing beats the scene of beheaded Lucy Westenra and then the plate of meat that is cut right after. That that direct cut from so, the flying decapitated head to the meat being sliced on the plate. Um, yeah, very gruesome and very clever at the same time. So here's here's my uh, my confession. I've only seen bits and pieces of that movie. I've never seen the whole thing all the way through. Oh shit! Okay. Yeah, I remember seeing yeah. that in the theater. I remember seeing that well, one I in the theater. Well, I can't say that about Pella. That one we saw when it came out in the theater, and because um, then of course the other one that came out that we all we all were woo woo about was um, Interview with a Vampire. Because I remember when I picked up that book. Oh, Louis. <laughs> oh, the film is did not age well. It did not age well at all. But I remember what a big impact that book had on me and what a big impact Dracula had on me when I sat down to read that book. I, I you know, Interview with a Vampire, just because I feel like uh, Lestat draws upon uh, Bella's rendition of Dracula a little bit more than uh, Brad Pitt does in that movie. Mm-hmm. But the book, yeah, the book I really liked. And then I tried to read Lestat after that, and that's when I gave up on Anne Rice. I don't even think I finished Lestat. No, that's fair. It was, it was, not good, in my <laughs> opinion. I think I think a lot of us went through an Anne Rice phase. I had my Anne Rice phase. I got into reading uh, the Witching Hour, and then in the middle of the book, goes off on this whole tear of the Mayflower, uh, the Mayfair witches' history in the middle of the book, and uh, and then I just couldn't anymore. <laughs> so I got over that real quick. All right. <laughs> but oh my God, we're rambling though about uh, about vampires quite a bit. But again, but I- but that's kind of the point, and that's where it comes back to because I think vampires are kind of like as far as goths and horror, vampires have always kind of been central. No, nobody can make a vampire movie anymore without being uh, somewhat goth-driven, fucking underworld, terrible movies. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're either going to portray one of the two styles of vampire. You're either going to go with the Nosferatu, Count Orlok version with uh, Max Schreck as Count Orlok, who 
Apparently yeah. did not need that much makeup. He was not a good looking nope. dude. Uh, but made, he made the vampire monster where Bella Lugosi made the vampire this elegant aristocrat. Yeah, so it's it's their size of a coin, and it's one or the other usually, you know, and sometimes both in the same movies, like what we do in the shadows. Yeah. So I think we were really inspired to bring up Bella Lugosi as a podcast episode uh, to talk about the tie-in with the goth aesthetic. As far as the look of vampires and how big of an impression that has left in the fashion of our subculture. Because we do talk a lot about music and music is our lifeblood on this podcast, but I think the aesthetics and the the fashion of our subculture is a pretty big role here too. Because it's such a visual identifier of who listens to what and what are you into and and finding people who have like interests. But hopefully this will inspire some film watching and uh, taking a look back at some of those old films. Because I think this is definitely going to inspire me to check out the original of Dracula. And there is a really nice little documentary about Bela Lugosi that's available on YouTube that I'll be sure to link in the notes. And I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Yeah, of course, you all know the drill by now. Please like, subscribe, share, tell your friends, put it out on your Facebook page, do whatever you can, let people know that we're here. Uh, I know some of you have. Uh, Thank you, Sasha, out in the UK, who almost every week seems, every time we drop an episode, puts us up on her Insta. You could drop us a line at it's Midnight Somewhere Podcast at gmail.com. You could also find us on Facebook at it's Midnight Somewhere. Uh, You can also find us on Prophecy underscore online on Twitch, where every Friday night, one of us is going to be on at least at 10. And on the first Friday of every month, aka Bandcamp Fridays, we will be doing a full prophecy where we're both there and shenanigans will ensue. We still have stickers available. Uh, you can find those at morbidoutlook.com and order them there. That helps us offset things like podcast costs for us. So if you want to pick some up, we'd appreciate it. Of course, we'd like to say thank you to Marion Green for the artwork on said stickers and Robin Bright for our intro song. And, of course, Justin, our intrepid producer who makes the no dollars but gets plenty of hugs from not me. (laughs) (laughs) Just not. All right. That's about it. Everybody, thanks. It's midnight, summer. It's midnight. This podcast was almost called Shitburger Dumpster Fire.